imagine somebody like Primogen's salary and how much money they cost and add the 30% on top. At what point does it make sense to hire someone like that to optimize your service? You have to be right. spending 500K a year that could theoretically be reduced to nothing by that person or a million a year that could be cut in half. And that's a huge ask. Like what at your company, even at a big company, costs a million dollars a year that one engineer could make cost half that much. There are very, very few problems that fit that, which is why something like Rust is not that interesting to me. Welcome to Backend Banter, the show about backend development, technology, and careers. I'm joined today by Theo Brown. Theo, uh, who are you? Mm, depends on who you ask. I am a web dev, software engineer, used to be much more backend person, still do a lot of backend stuff. I'm a YouTuber, a skateboarder, an influencer, all things creator world and AV, hardcore gear nerd about cameras and mics. Apparently, I got you set up with your camera and mic, so yeah. They do a lot of different stuff. Yeah, probably didn't even know it. That's okay. I sent you an email like nine months ago. You told me to buy all this stuff and it and it worked, which was good for me because I have no idea what I'm doing with mics and cameras. Good stuff. Yeah, always happy to recommend those types of things, especially for people who, who care enough to hit up the right people to ask. Yeah, totally. Okay, so you just mentioned a lot of things. And uh, I want to jump into some of the, at least uh, some of the most relevant things right out of the gate. So I know that you worked at Twitch. That's fantastic. I interviewed Melky recently. Um, what did you do at Twitch? Were you working on the same kinds of teams? Did you do Go? Was it all TypeScript? How, how did that work? What didn't I do at Twitch? So I don't think Melky and my teams touched too often. He's always been more on the payment side. I would like dance around the payments team a bit, but most of my effort was other places. I originally started on the creative team focused on non-gaming stuff at Twitch. Before I had joined, if you were not a gamer and you were streaming on Twitch, you were actually breaking terms of service. There are countless stories of people like Devin Nash who would be playing games of League of Legends. And if they won a game, they would dance between rounds and then get hit up by partnership uh, contacts and like their partner, or I forgot the name of the person, but like they'd have a partner manager and the partner manager would hit them up and be like, no, you need to not dance. It's not a dancing platform. It's a gaming platform. We'll have to ban your account if you keep doing that. That's it was crazy. that crazy. Yeah, weird to think now because none of us are software devs or none, <laughs> all of us software devs are not gamers on Twitch, but the, the ch times have changed. And a lot of that change came from me working with the new formed creative team at Twitch focused on making non-gaming content possible. The first big thing was the Bob Ross Marathon, which blew up having like all of the original Bob Ross television or television series being played back on Twitch with Twitch chat live was an incredible experience. The team formed around that to support that technically to build additional streaming technologies, both for creatives doing painting and other types of stuff on Twitch to have a better streaming experience on their Macs, as well as helping us internally stream those marathon content. Eventually, we became just the marathon team doing premium content. Eventually, that got folded into the VOD team, where I was told I was going to have to give up my beloved Elixir stack and move to Golang. I tried for three weeks. I hated myself. I was so <laughs> miserable that my manager pulled me aside and was like, yo, you're miserable. You're not doing shit. I know you hate this front end stuff, but we're about to start this rewrite of the Twitch website in React and TypeScript. You might actually like it. There's a little bit of functional programming in here. 
was like, sure, fine, I'll give it a shot. And yeah, a month later, I was in love and now mostly known as a front-end person. Okay, yeah, I, I love hearing this story because, yeah, I kind of always assumed that you did front-end stuff at Twitch. Um, and it's so funny. I mean, I, I'm a huge Go fan, so it makes me a little sad he didn't like it. But this should be interesting to listeners. Um, I don't know if I've talked about Elixir yet on the pod. Could you give us like the 60-second overview of the language? Why did you like it? So... Elixir exists because one of the main like Ruby ecosystem people was really tired of Ruby's gotcha, specifically the performance concurrency and general like networking model just aren't there. So he looked here, he did a soul search, looked around the language ecosystem, fell in love with Erlang's virtual machine and not its syntax. <laughs> Erlang and C or Erlang and C kind of diverged early in the history of programming languages. And Erlang, for whatever reason, before we had an idea of the internet, went deep on a networked model and it's really powerful for that reason elixir was written to give us the syntax and like composability of something like ruby but it compiles to and runs on the erlang ecosystem on beam so it's kind of a best of both worlds where it feels like you're writing ruby but then it runs incredibly performantly on top of this really really powerful ecosystem of tools and it let me take like my functional programming mindset and scale it in ways I never had imagined before. It was the first time I really felt like a, a 10x engineer where I could have like an idea for something to build and then just go hack it out and it would work and scale. That's really cool. I've always been a functional programming aficionado, but I've never actually like worked in a purely functional language. Is it as strict on like purely functional paradigms as something like Haskell or a little different? Not as strict. I would say it like, it takes a lot of influence from Ruby. It still has a concept of modules that is relatively extensible, but it really does push you towards functional patterns. Like pattern matching is a first-class citizen. Like the majority of the functions we had in our code base were overloaded, which meant that you would have the same function defined three times with different patterns as the input like uh, method. So your actual arguments for the function determine whether or not that function is called when you make a call to it. So if I had like withdraw in like a bank app and that withdraw function could take from either like a user account or a business account. I could literally in the argument for that function, define the type as user or business, and it will call the right function accordingly. No checks in the function to send it off to the right thing. You just overload it with the property. So when I hear that, like immediately, like when you say no runtime checks, like that's a big, like green thumbs up from me. But I'm also like, could you explain why you would want to use the same name of the function and have three different, like that sounds like it could be confusing. Like you're calling a function, it's named a certain thing. Maybe you grep through the code base, you find a, a function that's not being called because it has different arguments. Is that ever a problem? I found that to me, it feels less like, er, I'm trying to the right words for this. I feel like that's the OOP mindset really hard where you're starting with the object and trying to find the right function. The beauty of FP is you start with the function and try to like build the use case by chaining those functions. And I found mm. that when you really get into that mindset, the thing that changes, especially when you have pattern matching as a first class citizen, is the function itself defines what it does and doesn't need to run. So if you have a function that runs against the object or the arguments you're passing it, you can reasonably expect it to run. And if it doesn't, it just won't call the function. It'll say no function matching this pattern is found. The type safety isn't quite there yet, but they're working really hard on that. And once that is solved, I actually see Elixir being a really strong language again. But honestly, like I haven't shifted in production since 2018, and I, I'm all in on TypeScript at the moment. But I do miss the functional patterns, the pattern matching, being a first-class citizen, and a lot of the like 
magic around their namespacing and network stuff. Yeah, I can't believe like we're already, I don't know, 10 minutes into this and I've just been asking about Elixir. <laughs> this happens a lot. My, my, <laughs> not many people know that I'm an Elixir fanboy though, so I'm, I'm sure people will be excited to hear. Yeah, I'm glad it's it's coming out a little bit. Okay, so so TypeScript. Did you start doing so you started doing TypeScript at Twitch? Yes. I wrote my first line of TypeScript and React code about March 2018, if I recall. Okay. And did you immediately like it? Were you hesitant? What was your experience I there? I was incredibly hesitant getting started. I had dabbled in web dev many a time especially like early on in my career when I was more hosting Minecraft servers, I was learning enough web dev to make my WordPress site function to collect all the donations from people who wanted plots of land in my servers. And I hated it. I actively hated everything I did on the web. I despised PHP and I still do. I, I get that like it's productive, but it is not a pleasant experience. It doesn't give me the joy of programming. And the more I did web dev, the more I felt like I wouldn't end up being an engineer in the end because I hated it so much. And it was when I got more into doing like backend server stuff with Java that I started to really enjoy things, which is why when my manager told me, hey, you should try out this modern front end thing, you might actually like it this time. I was like, what the fuck? There, there's no way. And it took about two weeks before I started really feeling it. And then like under a month in, it had clicked. And around the same time, like two or three weeks after I had started taking it more seriously, hooks happened. And when React hooks happened and I could actually be like the functional programming person bringing that to Twitch, I, I was all in that I could like preach the magic of FP to the whole front end side of the company and get us bought in, get us adopting hooks for everything, push the major version updates to all the packages that need it and be the team that has zero classes in all of our features. That was so cool. That's really cool. I have a question about, mm -hmm. so I'm not an expert front-end person. I'm kind of a self-taught front-end dev. I've done way more on the back-end side of the stack. Um, but I have a question about React Hooks specifically. So React Hooks, like functional components, right? I want to understand a little bit better how they enable functional programming or, or, or maybe they, they have functional programming built in. Because one thing that really confused me out of the gate is how you can have a function like use state that's like the most anti-functional pattern in theory, because it's like holding state within it somehow. Was that mm -hmm. a like was that a red flag to you as a functional programmer coming into the hooks world, or did it feel natural? I'd say somewhere between the two. It felt like a a really clever solution as a wrapper to what now feels like a necessary evil, which is for functional programming to work in user land, it has to be stateful some amount. So, what's the most minimal abstraction of state that we can have? that allows our components to work in a, a like lively, updating, dynamic sense without necessarily destroying the purity or at the very least the inheritance and composability of functional programming. I think that if we were to compare OOP and FP, FP is inherently more composable. I will gladly die on that hill. And I, I think we're at a point now in the industry where we agree like most of the composition or methods that exist within OOP are considered like bad words now. Like we, we don't say inheritance too loudly or people get mad, which is a good thing. Inheritance was a mistake and we've understood that now. But with FP, the idea of composing functions around functions, that's just called programming. We barely even have a term for it because that's just how we do it. And while in this type of com composition with a hook, the composition results in the parent function being triggered to rerun in certain scenarios, 
I find that the composition, which is one of the strongest parts of FP, is stronger than ever in this new model. That makes sense. I mean, that's like arguably one of the most important parts of functional programming, like function currying, composing different functions. And it's always funny to me to hear people like compare OOP and functional programming. And it's like rightfully so, especially when you look at like the React paradigm of like we're moving from class-based components to functional components. Um, I teach object-oriented programming on boot dev, and there's like four pillars of functional programming if you take like the academic uh, definition. And it's like inheritance is one of them, and there's like polymorphism, abstraction, and encapsulation. And I always argue that like inheritance is the least good of the four. Um, I'm a huge fan of good encapsulation, right? But the interesting thing to me about like object-oriented programming and functional programming, if you just like throw inheritance out, there's a lot of really good software engineering principles to be learned in, from both worlds. Um, and I think a lot of the more modern programming languages take a lot of the best ideas from both. Um, I know Go is a, is a decent example of that. Is TypeScript a good example of that? I don't know if TypeScript's intentionally a good example of any pattern, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of concepts in there that are usable in fun ways, but there's also a lot of parts missing. Like, in my opinion, any strong functional programming language should have pattern matching in the arguments as a, a first-class citizen. And TypeScript might have pattern matching in the next few years. I'm actually going to record a video next week about how badly I want it and why we need to like get this proposal pushed through because it, it is effectively necessary. Like It's a silly thing, but when I wrote Elixir, I didn't write a single switch statement for a year and a half. I would just write a function with different inputs, and that was a better experience. And what I found is... With functional programming, I generally feel like I have fewer tools in my toolbox to worry about, and I understand those tools much better, which is why I very much lean into that, especially for teaching new programmers, because the, a problem I've seen a lot, and this is actually something I'm guilty of with like the T3 stack, just having multiple different things with names, it doesn't matter how complex they are. People get overwhelmed by the number of things before they get overwhelmed by the complexity of the thing. So if you have an option that has 20 things in it, that are all relatively easy to learn or an option that has four things in it that all fucking suck to learn. The vast majority of people are going to feel more comfortable getting familiar with that four piece thing simply because the, the top level of understanding what they have to learn is easier. And I get this pushback a ton with the T3 stack. It's like, oh my God, I have to learn all these things. Or with the new React server component model, it's, oh my God, there's so many parts to React now. And it doesn't matter that all of those parts are one-tenth the complexity they used to be and that the average feature I build has one-tenth the complexity it used to have because there's now nine proper nouns when there used to be two proper nouns, which makes everybody's heads fucking explode. So, yeah. Yeah, so are you talking about like... I'm trying to like relate this to my mental model of the world. Like, like there's a larger API surface area. Like there's more functions and methods and types to be aware of, but each individual one is like pretty easy to understand when you look up the docs. Yes, where like we could compare the many different ways to fetch data in the new React model with something like use effect. Use effect takes two arguments, one of which is a function that optionally returns a callback. The second argument is an array that can be optionally removed and then just break your whole application. It's like the relationship between all of the different things use effect can do makes it incredibly powerful. And as a person who's a nerd about composition, like the use effect API is like, oh, that's really clever and full of like unique ways I can compose this into crazy shit. But then when I take the step back and realize I have to teach this to teach, or when I take the step back and realize I have to teach this and integrate it in our 
projects and review it in code reviews, that cleverness stops being clever and starts being painful. The new model has like four ways to do the type of thing you would do with use effect before, but none of them have this huge pile of foot guns. It's just you fetch data, you pass data from a client component to or a server component to a client component, and you render it. It's it's the, the distance between the the problem and the solution tends to feel significantly smaller because the piece will fit much better in the problem you have. I don't feel like I am massaging the pieces as much. I'm just assembling them to a solution that works well and feels good. Yeah, that resonates with me a lot. When I was learning use effect, I was like blown away by the difference between like you call use effect with like an empty dependency array to like run yep. it once or like no array to run it on every render. I was like, this is a weird API. Uh, so I get definitely get what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And I am excited for a future where those types of things are only necessary as a library dev that knows them really well. Because uh, actually I actually have a video coming out soon. I, I called it the billion dollar problem with React. It's meant to be our take on the like null pointer issue. But instead of null pointers, we have empty arrays or bad array dependencies that cause millions of requests to fire on any person's machine. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Uh, definitely excited to check that out. Okay, so TypeScript at Twitch. You started doing TypeScript at Twitch. How long were you at Twitch writing TypeScript before you, I know you eventually moved on to like do mm -hmm. some startups and some other projects? Um, yeah, what was that time frame like? Yeah, I did about a year and a half pre TypeScript, and that leaves about three three ish years post TypeScript. I was like a bit over four years total. So, okay, awesome. And after Twitch. I mean, I know your most famous project clearly is Upload Thing, but there's the more lesser known project, <laughs> the T3 stack and ping.gg. How do those fit into the timeline post Twitch? So I worked at a startup right after, and every time I say anything about them, the founder threatens to sue me. And I, ah. he's a man child, so I just don't deal with him anymore. I do owe him God. a lot okay. because if it wasn't for him being such a man child, I wouldn't have realized, oh, maybe I can run a startup myself. Like if this dumbass can do it, it can't be that hard. <laughs> So six months into that, I gave up, quit, and started my own thing. I quickly learned it is hard to, to start a company, and it's pretty hard to run a company. But I just loved building so much that I was down. So when I first started my company, I took a bunch of what I had learned from the past. I combined a bunch of pieces of technology I was familiar with and solved the problem I cared a lot about, which is part of why I'm so offended using Riverside right now. I built a better <laughs> Riverside for live video experiences. Well, we call it a better Zoom. Because I knew a lot of streamers who were trying to do live podcasts and collaborations that were struggling a lot with the tools that existed. So I started hacking together a web app with WebRTC and Video Infra, trying to make it as easy as possible to do powerful live collabs. I knew a lot of creators who needed a better way to do live collaborations. It was just obvious that was the case. I need to fix my hair. Holy shit. God. You can leave this in. This will be funny. <laughs> so live collaborations sucked. Discord was not good enough. Having to screen capture your like web app and hope it fit your layout properly, and then one person leaves and the whole thing falls apart. It was it was such a mess. And trying to do a live show with more than just even two people was miserable. So I built Ping to try and fix that. Hit up my creator friends who I thought would benefit from it. A few were like, "I need this right now. Can you quit your job and work on it full time already? Because like we we need this." So I did. I quit my job, took it full time, tried raising money from some friends, got a little bit, but not enough. Applied to a couple accelerators, didn't get into any of the medium-sized ones, got rejected surprisingly early, and somehow got into Y Combinator. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, anybody who says like Y Combinator is like 
the the one that's impossible to get into is like a new founder and like you should go with one of the smaller accelerators they're fucking lying the smaller accelerators take themselves way too seriously and aren't willing to try new things as much they're looking for like a cookie cutter copy paste of something that worked for someone else before not something new and the fact that i was showing it was something new was a huge part of how i got it in the first place and uh yeah that point we started taking it more seriously that's really cool and i did not mean to offend you by inviting you onto a riverside call can i use ping for podcasting i assumed it was like for just for twitch live streams but if it solves my problems with riverside then uh, i need to take another look well you at the very least you would be more than 100 pixels on my screen right now if you were using ping the thing that's different with us is we do not want to compromise on the live quality because the majority of our creators are streaming out live like they're doing a twitter space or a youtube live stream or like mixer whatever else that still exists it's not just twitch we went out of our way to support everything we could but you're still streaming on your end you're still using obs on your end we provide you individual browser embeds so you can compose your layout and your stream yourself we didn't want to like give you here's how your video should look here's how you stream out like if you were to use riverside for a stream you would be using riverside to stream out and the quality is garbage like absolute garbage if you use ping for your stream you embed the full hd sources into your obs setup and then stream out your obs to wherever you want to go so it's more hands-on in that sense i would call riverside more like the weebly or like a drag and drop type like wix style interface where what we're building is like a real Linux server. You're composing the content yourself. We just give you the primitives you need to have HD video in that composition. As an engineer, you just told me I'm using Wix. I'm definitely going to have to yes. shake some things up because that can't that can't stand. <laughs> it is what it is. So a bit more about the history and how all these things got mangled. When I started Peng, I made the whole thing a single page web app using Vite and React. So traditional SPA, old school way. I also really wanted to get like the backend working in the same project. At the time, I was starting to use Vercel more. So I leaned into the Vercel API directory. It's something that not a lot of people know, but in any GitHub project, you link to Vercel. You can just have a folder named API input code files in it. It can be a JavaScript or TypeScript file. It could be a Golang file, a Python file, even now like PHP and Rust. And it will just turn that file and whatever it's named into an endpoint on your project. So if you have slash API slash hello world dot go, now you can go to slash API slash hello world on your deployment. And whatever function you're exporting there gets called with a request and then you return a response. And you can just make a web app that way without having to even set up a backend router or server. You just process request response and Vercel will handle it for you. I fell in love with that. It was for me as a person who came from back into front end. It was a superpower to not have to like spin up a server and set up all this infrastructure just to run one function on my servers. And quickly I started abusing this and I had like 20-ish functions in that API directory, but they were all like individual files. And as such, Vercel was deploying them all as individual lambdas. So my deploy time started getting pretty bad. I looked into it trying to figure out like how I was going to like condense all this and accepted that Next.js was the simplest way even if I didn't want to use it for my web app, at the very least, it would give me the ability to deploy all of my endpoints in a single Lambda trivially. So I adopted Next to try that and slowly fell in love with all the problems it took away from me. And now I'm kind of known as the Next.js guy, but that literally only happened because I was using the backend and API directory on Vercel alongside my Vite app. So at that point, I ported over from Vite 
plus like the API directory to full on next found I needed a few more tools in particular, the relationship between the backend and the front end wasn't well-defined and I was just exporting types all over the place and it was a mess. I talked to Tanner Lindsley, the creator of React Query about my crazy proposal for a hook I was gonna write, use backend, where you would write backend code in your front end component and a compiler step would rip that out, throw it in an endpoint and stub in a use query fetch call. And he was like, that sounds pretty cool. You should go check out these two projects I heard are doing something simpler or similar, Blitz.js and TRPC. I look into both. Blitz gives me an aneurysm because it wants to take over my entire stack top to bottom. And it's a new way to like build projects and there's no modularity. It's all its own solution. TRPC is just a backend front end like interface similar to something like a GraphQL where you define backend functions and then through their type definitions inherited and imported on the front end, you can now build a relationship that's strongly typed between your backend and front end without having to build a middleman in between. So I fell in love with TRPC. I also fell in love with Prisma as a type safe way to do databases inside of my stuff. And I'd been slowly getting tailwind pilled this whole time. I realized I had this new assembly of things that didn't seem like what other people were doing or talking about. And I was moving much faster than them. Like objectively, the speed I could move at was stupid. As a one man team, I was running circles around Zoom during COVID. So it was like, okay, there's something here. I want to talk about this. Wait, shit. I don't have my 600 front-end engineered Slack channel at Twitch anymore to talk about this with. Who do I talk about this with now? I miss my talented engineers. So I started streaming a little bit again. And eventually I took one of those streams where I built something with a T3 stack and I put it on YouTube. And then somehow conned Dan Abramov into doing an interview with me live because he wanted to do like mock job interviews and I'm really nerdy about interview culture. The Dan Abramov interview did really well. It actually caused the video I'd done a month before about what at that point I called the T3 stack to start blowing up. And that was kind of the birth of the T3 stack. It was the the pile of things that slowly had been settled in on for ping. And it just had, it just felt so good to use and let us move so fast that I wanted to talk about it. And slowly that video became one of the most pop, it was the most popular on my channel for a while. And the T3 stack's now a thing that's like listed in job listings and such, because it's that productive in more and more companies, especially small to medium-sized companies, as well as big companies with small focus group teams building greenfield stuff. It's really hard to make a faster moving stack than what we built there. That's really cool. I, I did not know the history of T3. I knew you were using T3 with Ping. It's also really vindicating to hear you explain this issue that you had where you were deploying all of these Lambda functions through Vercel's API wrapper. I had a very similar story. This is back in 2017 or 2018. I'd asked the DevOps guy at my job how he would deploy a new REST API, right? We were using Kubernetes at the time. I was like, are there any new technologies? What should I experiment with? And he was like, serverless. You need to use lambdas and, uh, you know, invocable functions. And I was like, cool, I'll take a look. I deployed an entire REST API on top of the serverless framework. And the deploy times were abysmal to the point of, yeah, like developer productivity was terrible. Um, so I ended up scrapping that, but what I didn't do was look into next and, and, and go down the route that, that you ended up going down. I kind of was just like, ah, I'd give up and go back to Kubernetes. Um, so this is really interesting to me. TypeScript, you ended up with TypeScript on the front end and the back end. That's kind of mm -hmm. the, the T3. Where's the third T? If it, is it TypeScript on the front end, TypeScript it's, on the back so end? T3 is just Theo. It's the three letters after the T. <laughs> I've had T3.gg since like GG domains were a thing. I just bought it as soon as I thought of it. And it's been my brand for a while now. So everybody thinks it's like the three T's are Tailwind, TRPC, and TypeScript. They're not. It's just my name. <laughs> 
Okay. All right. That, that, that makes a lot more sense. I was, I was definitely puzzling about that. Okay. So you do, you do run TypeScript on the backend for ping. Is that the only language that runs on the backend? Yes. And I'm super curious about this. You're streaming live video. Have you run into any sort of performance implications using the JavaScript TypeScript stack, or has it just been just fine? We're not rolling our own infra for that. We found an infra provider that's really good. Their SDKs are utter, utter shit, and we've <laughs> rewritten them from scratch ourselves for our use case. This is a big part of like, again, like we're a startup, we're looking for our edge. We found infrastructure that is groundbreakingly good that is almost impossible to develop on the way that we need to. So rather than deal with that, we solved that. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think this is something that confused me as an early developer. I don't know if it was like the CS degree education or what, but I was under the impression early on in my career that like you have to invent everything, like you have to build everything yourself and that that's the best way to do it. That's how real engineers do it. What I found is like, there's definitely two worlds out there, right? Like larger companies are interested in solving a lot of their own problems, um, sometimes for like legal or financial or whatever reasons. But like at startups, it is very much just about shipping application code a lot of the time. Have you seen my line of prime diagram or video? Um, it's been a while. I remember seeing the diagram, I think on on what is now x.com, formerly known as Twitter. I can probably pull it up quick if you can do a screen share. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I need the audio, I just need the video. So this is the line of prime diagram. The TLDR is on the left side, something's new. On the right side, something's been around for a while and it's getting a lot of requests. On the top, the amount of features being built is high. And on the bottom, the amount of features and changes and general amount of like flexibility necessary is a low. There's a point at which the amount of change happening in your service has gone down enough and the amount of traffic your service is getting has gone up enough that optimizing like the per request cost starts to make much more sense. But yeah. that point is significantly further along than most people give it credit, especially at large companies. Because when a large company is trying something new, like they're building a new feature or they're trying a new technology or a new solution to a problem, it takes a long time before even like at the scale of millions of users, it takes a while before you hit the point where multiple $200,000 plus a year engineers are worth dedicating to the problem if you could just spend 100K on a third-party service. And it's right. one of the most common misunderstandings I see. And I've seen this problem a lot when engineers have never been hiring managers or had a budget to manage, which a lot of big fang company engineers haven't. They've never had to worry about how, like the per person cost. And the, the big theory here, the underlying thing, is I don't think this is gonna stay that way anymore. Because companies now have to cut costs, the cost that your company's eating more often than not, is not your infrastructure, it's your engineers. Yeah. And if I can fire half my team and use Vercel, it doesn't matter if Vercel's $200,000 a year because I just saved $800,000 a year. Right. It's, I'm always amazed, especially especially new developers, right? Especially people new, new to maybe even the business side of software. But like developers are fucking expensive, like really expensive. Like the the $30 a month or whatever we spend on like your GitHub subscription is not a big deal. I've had, I've had engineers come to me and be like, but if it's too expensive, it's like a $50 thing they want. If it's too expensive to get me that mouse, I understand. I'm like, I'm paying you a hundred K a year. Like I'll get you the mouse. It's fine. Yep. Like a hundred K a year is not a hundred K in the end either. Once you're on the other side, cause you have insurance benefits, uh, like a bunch of taxes and things you have to deal with these types of like hardware purchases and such. 
I tend to just mentally put a 30% addition on top of whatever someone's salary is for accounting for how much they cost as a business. And when you start yeah. thinking in that way, like imagine somebody like Primogen's salary and how much money they cost and add the 30% on top. At what point does it make sense to hire someone like that to optimize your service? You have to be right. spending 500K a year that could theoretically be reduced to nothing by that person or a million a year that could be cut in half. And that's a huge ask. Like what at your company, even at a big company, costs a million dollars a year that one engineer could make cost half that much. There are very, very few problems that fit that, which is why something like Rust is not that interesting to me. Because while when you're in that scenario, you've reduced the number of features that are changing a ton and you get a ton of traffic, how expensive is it actually to run that service using JavaScript, using a less ideal technology? And how yeah. much would it cost you to move to something more performant? If it does, like at Netflix scale for their video processing type stuff, absolutely hire Primogen to save that. But even at big companies, if the problem is space is still changing, doing that now doesn't make sense because it's more expensive to build on the right side of that line, which I call the line of prime, this vertical line here. On the right side is when the like amount of flexibility that you need has gone down, the amount of churn and change in your feature set has gone down but your traffic is high enough now to justify that investment. It takes a long time to get there for any new project. And I think we, we overestimate how expensive our things are and underestimate how expensive we are as engineers because the vast majority of engineers have never made hiring decisions. Yeah. You heard it here first. Hiring managers don't hire Primogen. He's too fucking expensive. All right. Yes. Cool. <laughs> Moving on. Um, you had a fascinating video. This, this was like, I, I've seen a lot of your videos. This was maybe my favorite one, at least in, in recent times, where you claim TypeScript is not a programming language. And yes. I loved this video. Can you give me just the quick thesis behind the video? Absolutely. So TypeScript is very different from other programming languages in that it can't be run. Like TypeScript itself does not, run it's not even the code that gets handled that gets handed to your traditional like runtime in the end this isn't like a compiler step like in c where it gets converted to assembly it's a transpilation step where you go from typescript code that nothing can read to javascript code that a lot of things can read and then that javascript code gets interpreted underneath the role of typescript is interesting in that yes it is the thing that we're writing that gets turned into javascript but the stated goal of TypeScript was to be a strong, strict superset of TypeScript that has syntax for checking your JavaScript code. It is the goal of TypeScript to effectively be the best linter ever. And it does a pretty good job at that. It is effectively like you could do most of what you do with TypeScript with a really well done code comment system with a bunch of checks and things built on top. TypeScript is a, you could argue TypeScript is a syntax sugar for JS doc that's stricter in a lot of ways. And it, is really powerful for that reason, because anything you can do in JavaScript, you can do in TypeScript, but you can be much more confident when you're writing that JavaScript. Yeah. So the reason this was like so perfect when I watched it is I'm writing some TypeScript on the front end, which I hate the front end, but here we are right in the front end. And I get a hard TypeScript error in VS Code, like underlined red, right? This is a problem can't compile TypeScript, but for whatever reason, my dev server was still working. <laughs> and I was very confused by that because in Go, if I get a compiler error, I'm like, I just can't run my thing. I don't get to execute it. 
when I'm working in TypeScript, I get it, it's almost like they're just really strong suggestions. And I also have ESLint in the project. And so like I should have mm -hmm. these two linters that are doing maybe the same thing. Do you use both ESLint and TypeScript? How, yes. how do you approach that problem? They, there's a long history between those two. Uh, Josh Goldberg is the person to reach out to to better understand those things. He's a legend. We actually went to university together. Great dude. The long story short there is that ESLint is for all sorts of like syntactic things, behavioral, like rule things, structure things. TypeScript is, do the inputs and outputs exist? Have you checked that they exist? And is this going to execute or not? They are different in that way. And then there's also formatting, which is separate too. I would argue that type checking, linting, and formatting are three different categories that all have a bit of overlap. And I've actually found that linting and formatting are the ones people have more problems trying to understand the relationship between. I have a video that's you're using pretty or wrong because a lot of people have ESLint doing formatting rules like semicolons or commas, like trailing and stuff like that. That's what prettier does. And prettier doesn't have to check the structure of your code. It just has to check each line and say, yes, or this follows the rules or no, it doesn't and make a change. So you could also look at this as like a scale of how much work does each of these have to do to do its role. Formatting can be done in a single pass, super cheap, super quick. Linting takes a little bit more of the context, especially of the file that you're in. TypeScript requires the whole system to be understood. But all three of those allow us to have a better developer experience in slightly different ways. That makes a lot of sense. So a lot of my listeners to this podcast are like pre-first job. And they're hearing us talk about linters and formatters, two things which I had really no idea what they were until I started working in the industry. Why should anyone care about formatting or linting their code? It sounds like just a bunch of arbitrary rules that are going to make coding a lot harder. As a beginner, if you're setting up your own projects, don't bother with ESLint. Use Prettier, and I would say definitely use TypeScript too. ESLint is too much random cruft to get set up correctly right now if you're setting it up yourself and don't have another engineer who like is familiar with it. Like Even to this day, I go back and forth with Julius and uh, my friend Josh just trying to figure out how to get our ESLint stuff working correctly. That ecosystem has been through so much because like ESLint started before TypeScript was even a thought. And then TSLint happened, which was TypeScript's equivalent of ESLint. Airbnb realized they made a huge mistake there, not just being part of the ESLint foundation, and slowly merged to what became TSESLint, and now a bunch of new Lint rules for ESLint, and it, it's a mess. It's not fun. What I recommend for beginners always, I have a video I made called Your Goals Kind of Suck, because as beginners, as engineers in general, we suck at goal setting, and that's the thing you should be focused on, is setting realistic goals that aren't necessarily about the code, because I want to learn JavaScript. I'm going to be a JavaScript engineer. That's a shit goal. That's an absolutely terrible, you're going to fail type goal. That's like, imagine a skateboarder says, I want to be a professional skateboarder. No, you don't get good because you want to be a professional. You get good because you have specific tricks you want to learn and you're down to hit the ground over and over again until you get good at it. And you certainly don't get good at skateboarding by watching a bunch of skateboard tutorials on YouTube and thinking about it all day, or certainly not going to university and sitting in a class where somebody tells you which chapters of a book to read about skateboards. You get good by getting your reps in. You got to hit the ground over and over again, trying to do something specific. A good example of a goal for an early engineer is, I really like this video game. There is some math in it that's annoying to do. I want to build a calculator to keep track of these events in this game. That's a fantastic first goal because you will know when it's done. 
with a traditional, like the, the common type of goal, like I'm going to learn JavaScript. When are you done learning JavaScript? Because I've been writing JavaScript for 15 years now and I'm not done learning JavaScript. So it's so important to have that natural, I have achieved my goal, like endpoint. And I find that most goals for engineers, especially beginner goals, don't have a point where they can reflect and say, yes, I have achieved this, which makes it a bad goal. This is the first time we've talked, whoa, this is the first time we've talked about goals on the podcast, which I think is fantastic. So to like kind of sum that up into like, a, I don't know, a heuristic that people can use, is it project-based goals? Is that yes. the best thing to do? Absolutely. I'm a massive advocate for project-based learning, especially in this field. I would argue in almost all fields, it's a strong way of doing things, but in software dev in particular, it's the only way you're not going to go insane. Like you cannot learn Golang. You can learn how to build X in Golang and you can build X in Golang and use X and be proud of it, but you can't learn Golang. You can't yeah. learn JavaScript. You can't learn these things. You can learn how to use them for specific things. I couldn't agree more. I always talk about type feedback loops. It's like you, you learn a concept, you use the concept to do a thing, and then you can move on to the next concept. At least that's, that's how it's always worked for me. Absolutely. I'd go even further and say, you have a problem you want to solve. You're trying to figure out what thing you need to learn to solve the problem. And then you have another really powerful opportunity where if you pick the wrong thing and you start to recognize it's the wrong thing, you can bail out, but you've still learned enough of that thing to know where it might fit in the future. So like for me, I knew that Next.js had the API directory and they did some cool things with it, but I quickly learned I could stay on Vite and just use the API directory on Vercel. Once I hit a problem with that, which was the number of things I was deploying, I remember that Next had a better built-in version of the same thing. So I went back to it and from the, the pain points I'd had before, suddenly the value proposition there made much more sense to me. And these are like those like big brain, like thousand IQ moments that make you really, really grow quick. It's when you identify something as the wrong thing, use the thing that works for you then, and then bring back that wrong thing once it's right for you. That makes a ton of sense. I feel like this plays into something I see people that are learning do a lot, which is like, I heard X was cool. Sorry, not X. That's like, I can't use X anymore. Yeah, I, I hate that God I can't use it. X as the like thing to stand in. <laughs> God damn it, Elon. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I want to learn Rust because I heard about Rust on YouTube. And then you're right. The goal is, is vague and hard. There's like all this crap in Rust. I don't even get why it's useful because I've never done C before. So I don't even understand why memory management is hard in the first place. That is such a hard way to learn. And it ends up, I think, resulting in this like shiny object syndrome of like, I'm going to learn this thing for three weeks, give up, learn the next thing for three weeks, give up. Whereas, like you said, if you're setting milestones and you're hitting them, I mean, not only is that like way more dopamine inducing because you're getting shit done, I think you actually do make deeper progress when you when you go that route. Absolutely. Almost all the best engineers I know are people who only learned to code because they had some specific problem they had to solve. Like one of my favorite engineers is an engineer named Jason Docton. He's the founder of the URAD mental health charity. He's actually like, a, if I recall, a certified therapist and got really into mental health through his World of Warcraft guild that became a charity that now became this like huge way for people to get their first therapist and That's help crazy. them out financially if they need it and organization-wise if they don't. It's such a cool org. I love them. He started looking into getting a website made for them. And like the lowest quote he could get for a charity's website was like, $400,000. He's like, the fuck? It can't be that hard to build a website, right? And taught himself from scratch, modern web dev. And now he's like one of the best tailwind engineers I know. He's really into typography and typesetting in particular. He's just nerdy about it and like regularly files PRs to my projects, just fixing things. He's 
the best. And he like onboarded himself to that point in under three months solo. And he had one engineer friend who used to work at Twitch with me that he quickly superseded. And that friend was like, yo, man, I'm sorry. I, I, you know more about this than me now. Uh, can I put you in touch with my friend Theo? He might be able to help because you're using this Next.js thing. So you got thrown into my circle. He was still using Vanilla.js. So he rewrote his project in TypeScript over the weekend. He became a huge TypeScript advocate after that point. But like, he got good because he had a problem to solve and he knew when it was solved. He needed a website for his charity so that people could sign up, join the guild and do what they need to find a therapist. And he had that very noble driving goal pushing him to learn how to code. And there's no way you can do better than that. I mean, yeah, that's that's like top one percentile of people learning to code. That's that's crazy. But there is a lesson to learn there, I think. You know, something I tell people when they're trying to think of portfolio projects, like, you know, so they can find their first job is like, try to solve a real problem. Like real problems tend to be interesting. Like that story you just told is a fantastic story. It's going to be a great clip on this podcast. Like imagine telling that story in an interview. Like that does that does really, really well, frankly. Yeah. And you come out a better engineer too. Like it's not the story does well because it sounds good. It's the story does well because you did good. Like, like as yeah. an engineer, you will be so much more proud of the things you build if they solve problems that you have and understand. Awesome. Okay, now I want to just really quickly get a few hot takes from you before we wrap up, all TypeScript related. The first is, what's your favorite part of TypeScript? So I know that you use it for a plethora of reasons, but like, what's the one thing? I absolutely love the inference model. I know that inference means something different in a lot of different languages, but the reality that I have when I use TypeScript is that on one side, I have a, a type definition that that exists it's inherent or almost like natural in a way in many cases it'll be like your database schema so i have my database schema it's strictly defined it has these models that have these values in them that could be null or could be string could be number and then i have a component i want to render on my front end in my ui the relationship between the model and my back end and the data that my client component gets to render on front end can be inferred back to front such that if I make a change of the structure in my database without having to make any code changes whatsoever, I get a type error on my front end if it no longer is in the shape that it expects. The amount of flexibility I get out of that and the ability to like confidently make sweeping changes across any size of project, knowing that I'll get that red squiggly line if something's wrong, is so, so powerful. And I've yet to find another language that has inference that strong. Prime's even said recently that as much as he loves Rust, now that he's using it in more greenfield stuff, once the spec changes, once the, like, look, if he, he said, if he understands exactly how to build something start to finish, Rust is a great option. But if anything changes throughout, suddenly Rust stops being a great option. And that is the reality of software dev. If the projects were understood fully from the start, AI would take our jobs. The reason it won't is because of product managers. Like things change way too much for our jobs to be overridden by like quickly writable, like unchangeable code. And TypeScript gives me the flexibility of something like JavaScript to write something really quickly, but also the maintainability and reliability, not of a Rust level thing, but pretty damn close while still honoring that level of flexibility that JavaScript comes with as long as you use inference for as much as you can, which is also why I have the strongest takes I do about return types and strictly defining everything in your code bases because you're, you're throwing away one of TypeScript's best benefits, but that's an aside. Yeah, 
we might need to touch on that. I'll just say quickly that your favorite thing about TypeScript plays into one of my least favorite things about Go in a full stack context in the sense that I did a lot of Go that was just strictly backend work and I loved it. Now that I'm doing a little more Go in the full stack context, I basically have to take the structs that my handlers return, paste them into a tool that generates TypeScript interfaces or types or whatever, and paste those into my front end. So I don't get this back to front inference that you're talking about. And it's a giant pain in the ass. It is rough. I helped build a bunch of this at Twitch where we had a compile step that would take the schema that we would define in Golang, compile out the GraphQL schema, and then compile out type definitions that would be inherited in the front end as you were consuming it. But there was like four compile steps necessary for this to work. We had to <laughs> compile the schema through Golang. We had to compile that schema into type definitions for TypeScript. And then when we wrote the actual queries in our app, we'd have to run a compiler to go against that schema to then generate the correct type in that query instance, which is like just so much. Where with TypeScript and TRPC and Prisma, I go in my database model, I define something, I go to my TRPC endpoint, I prisma.user.find first return. Now that's the exact type of my Prisma schema model. And now I consume that in my client just by calling trpc.getUser and the type's honored back to front. And if I go make a change to the model in Prisma, the client side there will infer it correctly. And it, like, yes, if you have different languages on the back end and front end, something like GraphQL as that translation layer is really powerful. But if you don't have to have it, you're just spending a bunch of time doing something you don't need to and managing complexity that doesn't need to exist. Yeah. Managing away complexity. I mm -hmm. love it. What's your favorite thing? What's the one thing you'd be up in arms about if they removed from the language? I think it would be inference just because there, there's so many people coming from other languages that say that's not how inference works. I need to strictly define my return types on everything or I'm not really using a typed language. I have a whole video about this, uh, the dangers of return types. I think what it's named now, I've changed the name a bunch. It's probably the most effort I've put into a single video other than like one of my long form tutorials. I'm really proud of that video because I specifically break down all of the stupid gotchas around return types most of which I'll admit are unique to TypeScript and its implementation of them. But generally speaking, it's not a great paradigm if you can do inference that is as strict as TypeScript's. So yeah, take away inference and I'm going to go write my own language. Thankfully, they would never, but yeah. Okay. All right. This plays back into the comment from a couple of minutes ago, and now I have to dive into it. So Backstory, you and Prime had this famous argument on Twitter over return types, or I should say inferred return types in yes. TypeScript. When I first saw that happening, uh, I was actually pretty new to TypeScript. I'd written a lot of JavaScript in the past. I was just getting into the language. And coming from Go, my, my default position was like, Prime's right. Like, we, sh we should just put types in our function signature, I can read the function signature, I can see what it returns. Over the last few months, as I've been using TypeScript, I now have a much more nuanced take on that because it's a giant pain in the butt, A, to put the return type there, but as you've pointed out, it can be wrong sometimes when you mm -hmm. explicitly state it, um, or at the very least, it's often a superset of what you actually wanted. So like, for example, um, you have union types, which are an amazing thing in TypeScript, where it's like, you know, this this type is literally only this string or this string. It can be no other strings. And if I put string as my return type like I would in Go, 
I'm essentially casting something that can only be this thing or this thing into like just a generalized string. So I've come around a lot on that. There is one question I want to ask you though, because I think there's still one holdout use case for uh, for explicitly putting a, a something on your return type. And that is to protect yourself from writing something into your function that you didn't want. So like, for example, in Go, let's say I, I know that I want this function to return a string. And because I have multiple return statements, somewhere in there, I return something else. My understanding is that in TypeScript, the default would be to just return a un it's now a union type, right? Because I have multiple return statements. One of them is returning thing A, one of them is returning thing B. So TypeScript infers this function returns thing A or thing B. Whereas in Go, if I did that, it would just yell at me and say like, no, you wanted to return thing A here. You need to fix it. I think we kid ourselves when we say that at the point of writing every function, we know exactly how we want it to be consumed from that point forward. And the, the argument I make against the strong, strong return type case here is that it's not a problem until you consume it. Like if you have a function that's supposed to return a string, but there's one case where it returns a null, that's not a problem until I run the function and then I run dot to uppercase and it gives me an error saying, hey, that might be null. Which point I'm like, oh, why? I hover over the function definition. It says string or null. I'm like, oh, I'm returning a null in there I shouldn't be and I fix it then. But I shouldn't have to, to put in that mental overhead with the possibility of making my functions less strict and less safe by doing it because I might consume it incorrectly in the future. I think that the strength of TypeScript and its inference is that the point of consumption is when you know if a type definition is correct or incorrect. You don't have to worry about that when you're defining the function. That makes sense. And apologies if you've already, I mean, I'm sure you've already talked about this, but for my listeners, um, do you draw a distinction when you're like building a library? Because like yes. in an application, what you're saying makes perfect sense, right? It's like you define your function, you call your function, it'll yell at you when you call it. When you're defining a library, you're just exporting stuff. So are you a bigger fan of explicit return types there? It, writing library code in TypeScript and writing application code in TypeScript feel like not just different languages, but like whole different worlds and mindsets. And like, it, it's a lot of why TypeScript is so powerful is it's just straight up shifted that burden of complexity onto library devs to do. And if most of your time is spent doing library work, like I'm sure Primogen's is, his stance makes much more sense in that regard. But if you're building applications that are facing users with APIs that might change because some user has an issue with their screen reader or another issue has an AV or another user has an AV device that's not supporting a specific expectation that you've encoded. The flexibility you get from inference allows you to make those changes confidently. But with a library, you need that to work for all the different use cases that you can't see because they're not in your code base. So if I make a type change to one of my functions and that breaks somebody else's code in a different project that speaks a different language than me, how does that get to me to make the fix? It probably doesn't. So at that point, absolutely, return types and a lot of other things make sense. Like the, I talk about TRPC a lot. It's a fantastic project for full stack type safety. The number of any's in the types or the number of any's in the TRPC code base is baffling because they're not trying to make a super strict internal TypeScript solution. It actually makes making changes in TRPC really scary because you don't have much type safety internally in the type or in the TRPC code base because they're not using TypeScript as a way to keep their code safe. They're using TypeScript as a contract system for you to keep your own code safe. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I had, I had no idea that's how it worked. I've also never tried to write a library in TypeScript. Um, but whenever I have to dive into the type definitions for one of the libraries I use, I count myself lucky that I don't write libraries in TypeScript. <laughs>
Yeah, it's something I've been doing a lot more this past year, and it is rough. It's changed my tune on a lot of things. I actually did a video recently, why these important devs hate TypeScript and React, where I specifically talk about how library maintainers and authors, especially in like the React ecosystem right now, a big part of why they are frustrated and why they're pushing back is for very good reason. It's that their job as maintainers is continuing to get harder as these tools enable more behaviors that require these library authors to, to take on the burden to make things easier for the user. Like the new React model with server components enables what I call NPM installable infrastructure. When you install upload thing, which is our alternative to S3 for full stack web devs, you host an endpoint on your service that handles authentication, authorization, and the callbacks for when the files are done uploading. That's a piece of infra that you're deploying on your servers that we manage with you with a package that is fully open source. You could change however you want and a bunch of customization built in. And then that endpoint gets called by a user doing an upload. Once you've authenticated them on your server, you call our server to get the pre-signed post URL that you then forward down to the user who then sends the file to us. And we call you back when the file is done uploading. So there's none of the weird security exploits that a third, fully third-party host would have nor are there the edge cases that a fully first-party host would have, such as the user posts to S3 and then blocks your site so they never call back to you when the file is done uploading, then you end up with ghost files all over your infrastructure. We found a solution there by NPM installing a little piece of infra that you host in your existing project. And now that is the in-between of your users and our infra. And by allowing for these types of composition to exist, a whole new type of software as a service industry can now exist. Companies like Clerk, Upload Thing, Upstash, Axiom, all of these businesses that are effectively building backend as a service, but your backend is the service. I That's love that. So but it's so much yeah. more work now for the library maintainers too. Yeah. NPM installable infrastructure. I hope that uh I hope that catchphrase catches on. I like that. Yeah. There's a bunch um, of us pushing for it. Cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to I'll make sure to say it more often. If if the two th previous things we've talked about were not already it, what is your most unpopular engineering opinion? I think it's the video I, I just published. It's a redo of one I had done before, which is about betting on technologies. I think people overvalue the benefit of getting to a technology early. Like, let's say Rust replaces Golang and even C++ in the next five years, where Rust becomes the dominant, performant, memory-safe backend solution. If you got into Rust right now, how much better off are you five years from now? Many think you'll be much better off getting in that early. I'd argue neutral to possibly even worse off. I mean, the, the, like, I imagine where most people's heads first go, where my head first goes is like, well, now I have five years of experience in a language that's dominant. Why, why would that be a bad thing? Because a huge part of how it gets dominant is by changing. And if your mindset is five years behind, because that's when you put in your time and your reps are for an old version, that's no longer how it works. You're actually at a huge disadvantage. Like for me, I got into React halfway through React's current life. I was very late to React. But I got in right as hooks were happening. So I was able to make the mental shift to the new model and be one of like the early people pushing it because I didn't have the baggage in my brain of this old model slowing me down. And I was actually able to, to look at the old model and the new model and have a more neutral comparison because I didn't have any horses in the race yet. It's like, yeah, 
obviously this is better. Obviously I'm going to do this. And as I've spent more time in the React ecosystem, it's actually been harder and harder for me to have that level of neutrality looking at new solutions. Like I didn't like Next when I saw it initially because I had my mental model of React as a single page app. And I didn't like server components initially because I had my mental model of the T3 stack experience with TRPC. But the more you're invested in the way things work now, the less likely you are to make the jump for why they're successful in the future. YouTube's my favorite example for this because all 100 of the top 100 creators for the first five years of YouTube, every single one is irrelevant now. Just flat out, period, point blank, we don't argue about it. Because the way YouTube worked before didn't really work. It worked for the smallish audience YouTube had then, but for YouTube to become the huge thing it is now, it had to change. And any creator that found the formula when it was too early now has so much brain rot, they can't get out of it anymore. And it's so, so common in every field that if you get in too early before the critical masses hit, any biases that existed before said critical mass are going to be really hard for you to shake. That is fascinating. I've never heard this before. Um, I got into Go like, yeah, halfway into its current life cycle, I guess, like 2015, 2016. So I was like halfway in, if you consider like when it when it came out to now. And I feel like I've had a great time in Go. And when generics came out, I was really excited about it. But like... It, it's almost like an old dog, new tricks thing that you're kind of explaining here, where it can be yes. a lot easier to pick up the new tricks if you were never stuck in the old paradigm. And, that, and you yeah. don't know which old tricks are even relevant because half the tricks you learned in that early window might no longer matter in the later window. So when you get in late, you, you get to benefit from all the work everybody's done for that past period, figuring out what doesn't, doesn't matter. And like, I can't imagine somebody who like, was trying really hard to learn React and they had to memorize all the weird patterns around like mix-ins, should component update, the class behaviors changing between minor versions and all of this chaos. Well, now I can just write a function, throw a use state in there and I'm doing the same thing with one fourth the cognitive load. Like, yeah, it, it just, it doesn't make sense to get in early, even if you are confident that thing's gonna succeed. The one caveat I might throw in is you will be ahead in HR's eyes even if you're not ahead from an engineering perspective, right? Yeah. 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 I not tend to that, not value that Yeah, that doesn't matter as much uh, is, yeah, is but definitely I, you're, you're, what I take away. You're not wrong, but you can also just lie, which isn't the worst thing. <laughs> or take a project exactly. that you had for a while, port it into the new thing, and then say the project's been around for four years and it's written in this thing, even if you've only been using the thing for six months, and you can get away with that. Like, no one double checks. Like, these are all, like, like, like edge case like benefits that aren't as viable and the more i've thought about it the more i realize like the engineers i look up to the most that i consider the best at their craft almost always got into the thing that they're doing relatively late yeah and and i want to be very clear because we, we do have a lot of people listening to this that are that are very new to engineering if you like it is way more important to be a good engineer that can ship good stuff than to be able to placate hr like you yes. will have a much more successful career if that's the thing you're you're worried about. So don't read too much into my joke about HR liking your resume. Cool. Absolutely. And just build cool things with technologies that you want to use. And if you have some new thing that's really exciting to you, like you're just super into Svelte or Rust, like you love what it's doing, you're aligned with the mission, you want to be part of why it's the next thing, do it. That energy and that excitement is going to bring you much more success than any given technology or philosophy will. If you're just so excited, you're going to push the thing, push it. I shouldn't stop you. I should, in fact, invigorate you to prove me wrong. But 
yeah, like anybody who says I am being or, like the, the take I get is I am bad for engineering. So I'm telling people to not use Rust or Svelte. No, I'm telling people to make realistic bets. And if they really want to use those things, they can say, yo, Theo, you're wrong. I'm going to go use it. Cool. Awesome. I love that. That's how change happens. But don't be a driver of change unless you want to be a driver of change. Be a driver of good software. That's what our job is. It's not our job to change which languages we're using every six months. It's our job to solve problems for users. And letting all of this like pissing fests on Twitter and shit get in the way of building great software, that doesn't lead to good engineering. I love that. Twitter's fun for me. It's not productive for me, and it's probably not productive for anyone listening to this either. Uh, build cool stuff. That's what's going to help. Thanks so much for coming on, Theo. Where can everybody find your stuff? You can check out my YouTube and Twitter, t3.gg. My Twitch is just my name, Theo, and the website t3.gg has links to absolutely everything. If for some reason you're into like the creator or economy stuff, like what's going on with YouTube, how do the algorithms work? Maybe you're just a nerd about camera gear and stuff. I do have another channel, Theo Rants, where I just talk about all that type of stuff too. I didn't even know about that channel. I'm definitely going to check my out My most Theo popular Rants. videos on that yeah. channel, actually. I complain about Red's camera patents and how they're destroying the camera industry. And it has half a million plays. Wow. That's bigger than your normal YouTube videos on your main Way channel. Way bigger. Yeah, yeah, it's the second video on that second channel. And it just it blew up because I, I branded it right. It was a topic nobody was talking about. And yeah, hit the right audience. That's really cool. Everybody go check that out. T3.gg is like the main hub. I'll make sure to link it down in the description below. Thanks again, Theo. Talk to you later. Appreciate it. Thank you.